You are listening to sermon audio from College Creek Church in Annapolis, Maryland. For more information on this local body of believers, visit us online at collegecreekchurch.org or in person every Sunday at 11 a.m. Google Earth is fascinating. Um, I don't know if you've ever played with uh, Google Earth, but if you're looking to waste some time, um, you should definitely do it. It's an incredible uh, website application on your phone. Here's what happens when you go to Google Earth. You will begin with this screen that has the entire globe on it. It's like a view of the world from outer space but it allows you to zoom in and in and in and you get closer and closer in and things begin to come into focus. They begin to take more clarity. You begin to see mountains and and rivers and as you get a little bit closer in, um, Google will show you where the, the borders of the different countries are and the names of the countries will pop up and then you can keep zooming in even further and the names of cities will pop up and, and roads will become visible. And it starts, you'll see, you'll see the interstates. If you're looking at America, you'll see the interstates. But as you get even closer, you begin to see just all these little roads, even dirt roads in the middle of nowhere. They begin to come into focus. You zoom in and in and in and you're in the middle of this community and buildings show up and, and cars show up and people show up. And you can even like drop a little person into the road and it's like you're standing there and you're looking around at at the community. You're looking around. If you go to the house that I grew up in, the house where my parents still live, when you zoom in, you can see my mom driving to our house. It's her car in the drive. It is spooky what you can do on Google Earth. But it's incredible at at the same time, right? With just a few clicks of the mouse, you can go in, but then you can zoom right back out on to your next adventure, right? You see the particular contours of that community. They begin to disappear. They begin to connect outward to the rest of that country, to the rest of the world, ultimately. We're looking at the whole world. Well, this is kind of what happens in the book of Ruth. And, and frankly, we see it kind of happen all over Scripture. As you read through Scripture, the Bible is this cosmic story, this overarching, overwhelming, true story of God's dealing with people over the course of all time. It is expansive. It speaks in overarching language to us. Like when Jesus says really famously, right, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. But then, right? We're able to dip into this story at very particular moments and see particular storylines like the one of Ruth. So we have this cosmic story that goes something like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And then because of sin, we see scripture saying, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. It goes on to say, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, right? And the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. If we 
move forward in scripture, we're told this about all of creation, for we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And then we have that verse where Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then finally we're told, then I saw a new heavens and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. That is an incredible story, this cosmic overarching story. But it also feels kind of impersonal, kind of distant from, it's incredible, but it seems far away. But just like Google Earth, Scripture allows us to zoom in and in and in and begin to see with more and more clarity. God's working in the lives of a particular people, right? The people of Israel. And just like the border lines of Google Earth that show up the contours of the mountains and the rivers, things begin to become more clear. But if we just press on even further, the Bible lets us zoom in even more until we can see this playing out in the lives of very particular people at a very particular time. People like Ruth and and Boaz and Naomi. And similar to how I was able to see my mom driving down the driveway on Google Earth, we see Ruth, this very particular person, walking out to the fields of Bethlehem to glean, walking to the threshing floor to meet with Boaz. We see Boaz going into the city gate so that he can redeem this woman. But as we finish this story today, we're going to see the author of of the book of Ruth zooming back out and showing us how this very particular story connects outward to what God is doing, not just in Israel, but what God is doing all throughout time. It shows us the connection to the rest of the story. Ruth is not simply a story that is written for family history. It is a story that connects with the rest of God's redemption plan. It's a story that connects with the rest of history. It's a story connected to the very despair of the world. The despair that we see in Ruth is connected. And then the hope that we see in Ruth is connected to our hope as well. And so today we're coming to the end of our series in the book of Ruth, the end of the story. And we're gonna see that while Ruth's story is coming to a close, the story goes on. We've called this this series in Ruth, Hope from Despair. And if you've walked with us for these last several weeks, you've certainly seen it over and over again, God bringing hope out of the despair that they find themselves in. You may remember that in in the life of of Ruth and, and Naomi, the book sort of begins in a really terrible way. But for as terrible as it begins in the end, it's kind of a feel good story. We've kind of, we've gotten, we saw that last week. We're going to see it even more this week. It's one of those stories that at the end of it, you might say kind of like the fairy tales do. They all lived happily ever after. It's this wonderful ending to a book. So let me just remind us of the, of the two ways that we see despair in the book of Ruth specifically. 
the great needs of Ruth and Naomi are food and family. Those are the things that sort of come to the fore. You may remember that at the very beginning of the book of Ruth, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, took his family because of a famine in the land, took his family to Moab in search for food. But when they got there, Elimelech dies, right? Later, his two sons die. And in search for food again, the now widowed Naomi returns to Israel with her now widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth, searching for food, searching for family. And in chapter two, what we begin to see happen is God begins to provide food food for these two women through this this very generous man by the name of Boaz, right? And then in chapter three, the quest for a family comes into focus as Ruth asked this Boaz if he would marry her to redeem the line of Elimelech, to raise up an heir for him. And so last week we see Boaz stepping into this responsibility, right? He buys the right of redemption. But it's in our passage today, our passage this week, that all of this finally becomes a reality. And so we're just gonna go ahead and read from the end of the book of Ruth. We're in chapter four. Um, So if you wanna turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter four, um, it'll be up here on the screen as well. And if you picked up one of these Bibles on your way in, you'll find it on page 128. Um, And if you don't have a Bible of of your own at home, please take one of those with you. It's it's our gift to you. Let me read for us Ruth chapter four starting in verse 13, it says this. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more than seven sons to you, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So whose hope, whose hope is being fulfilled in this story? We may want to read this story as simply Ruth, the the barren widow, finding hope by being provided with a a husband and a son. Certainly, that's that's a true story. It's a profound and important story. I think we like that story of, of Ruth, the barren widow, coming to find hope and a husband and a son because it's it's really personal. And so it's kind of like our own stories as well, right? I mean, I don't know. I'm all of the personal struggles in your life. I don't necessarily know the deep despair and sadness that you have experienced, but I do know that it's there. I do know that you do have sadness and despair and struggles in your life, right? Some of you are in financial 
despair. You don't know how you're going to make it to the end of the month, much less through Christmas. Right? Some of you are in relational despair. Right? You feel the, the strain and, and the loss of, of relationships that used to be close, but now seem far apart. And maybe you too are dreading the holidays, right? Because they're going to bring sadness, right? Maybe fighting, maybe, maybe anger, maybe all of the above is going to come. Some of you like Ruth are, are despairing because you really wish you had a spouse or you really wish you had a child. And as of yet, the Lord hasn't given one. Right, others are in physical despair, or you just don't know what, what health is going to look like tomorrow, right? Maybe you listen to that list of things and you think, it's none of those, but I do feel it. I feel despair. I just, maybe I can't even pinpoint exactly what it is, but I know that it's there. And so these personal experiences of suffering and despair are why the story of Ruth matters. It's why it's so helpful to us, right? Because it's this really tangible example of God working hope in despair in the life of a story, the life of an individual person, right? As we just read, right, this is how the story ends. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He went into her, the Lord gave her conception. She bore a son, hope from despair. All the things that she wanted are fulfilled in the end. Now the the hope of God that we see there, we might look at our own lives and we think, well, that doesn't seem like the way it works at all. That's often, very often, not the way the hope of God works in our lives. God's hope is often not so clear cut, right? But it wasn't that clear cut in Ruth's life either. I mean, I'm sure that for the decade that she was married and longing for a son the first time, there was a whole lot of praying and a whole lot of hoping for a child that just never got fulfilled, right? And we don't know how her husband Malin died, but depending on how he died, there was probably a whole lot of praying and a whole lot of hoping that he would live. And yet he died. So we read the story, we see the end and we think, well, there's hope there, but there was a whole lot of despair before we got there, right? The road to hope is often a hard one to walk. And the end of that road may not be the hope that we had hoped for. And yet the promise of God is that he is working the best hope out of our despair. But not just for us, right? The, the hope that comes to Ruth expands out. We find, we find this happening to Naomi, right? The, the hope of Ruth becomes the hope of Naomi as well. In fact, after what we just read, it never mentions the name Ruth again. It moves on. It just starts talking about Naomi now. Here's what it says in verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has left you, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the city or the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying this, a son has been born to Naomi, not to Ruth because the hope expands out from Ruth to Naomi. Here's, we see this really
convening of the women of the neighborhood. They had a gathering in chapter one. When when Ruth and Naomi originally came into the city, all the women came around, right? You may remember that. But now they gather again, this time to give praise to God for bringing hope into the life of Naomi. Ruth's son is now known as the son to Naomi. It's the son that's gonna be the restorer of Naomi's life. It's because this son is the restoration of the lineage and the the name of Elimelech. It's going to continue in the land of Israel. But here's the thing. If we zoom out even further, we find in the very last verses of our passage that this personal story about Ruth and Naomi and their hope is actually about the hope of all of Israel. We find that as we end the book, This story was written down. It was preserved for us generations after it had happened, right? It was during the reign of King David that this story was finally put down on paper and reserved for, or preserved for the generations, right? Three generations have passed. And for those three generations, this was just a family story, just something that they talked about around the Thanksgiving table every year when they remembered the cool story about how Ruth had a child that's, that's all it was. But now, now what's happened? David takes the throne. David becomes the king in Israel. And all of a sudden, this story is of national importance. All of a sudden, this story, the hope that this story brings expands out. As we zoom out in the story, the hope expands with us. As our vision broadens, so does hope. It fills our sight. Here's the last verses. We often just skip over these genealogies, but they're really amazing. Here's what it says. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. The expansion of hope goes in both directions. The baby born to Ruth brings hope all the way back to Perez because this baby, This Obed is the grandfather of the king, is the grandfather of God's anointed ruler over Israel. King David was the great hope of Israel. He was the conqueror of the Philistines. Under him, the the covenant with God was renewed. Under him, the land knew peace and and prosperity and, and prestige in the world. It was with King David that God reconfirmed his covenant in Israel. God had made those promises all the way back, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob promises made, and then they lived for centuries in slavery in the land of Egypt. And then they get out and they wander for decades in the middle of the wilderness. And when they finally get into the land, they don't take the whole land. And because of that, they just start worshiping other gods. And it's just back and forth, back and forth. Wars come, they get defeated, they get taken captive. And then they get released again and then they get taken captive again, back and forth. But now David, David is the king. The covenant's renewed. The people are worshiping God again. God's presence is dwelling in the midst of the people again. Finally, we have hope in the midst of our despair. 
in David. Hope is found, but it's worth noting, I think, where this hope came from. In this story, hope is found in this child, right? Obed, a son of Israel, the grandfather of the hope of Israel, and yet Obed is barely a Jew. Like, when we think about his ethnicity, he's pretty much the least Jewish person possible. And yet this is who God uses. If we were to look at the Bible and begin to think about the Bible telling us that racism is okay, that it's okay for us to look down on this person or that person because of their ethnicity, when we look at scripture, here's what we find. God is taking the person who is far off and he's bringing them in. And that's what we see with Obed. So here's what we know. We know that his mother, Ruth, is a Moabite, not a Jew, right? And then here's what we may forget. His grandmother... His grandmother's a Canaanite. His grandmother is Rahab the Canaanite. So he's barely a Jew, and yet he's the hope of Israel. Regardless of his ethnicity, he's the one that God is going to use. And if we were to just pick through his history, pick through that genealogy with a fine tooth comb, what we would find is that there seems to be perhaps all sorts of things that would disqualify Obed. Certainly things that would disqualify David, right? For instance, Perez, the one who started the whole thing, he's the son of Tamar and Judah, who in case you didn't know, was conceived when Tamar, his mother, pretended to be a prostitute so that Judah, her father-in-law, would sleep with her. And then we get Perez, this is great, right? And then his grandmother, as we already mentioned, right? Rahab the Canaanite, she, unlike Tamar, didn't pretend to be a prostitute. She actually was a prostitute. And now we have the Moabite getting brought into the family line as well. And what happens? What do we see? We see God using these just broken outsiders for the sake of his kingdom. God using broken people like you and like me for the sake of bringing hope into the land of Israel, hope to his people. But if we just zoom out a little bit further, here's what we're gonna find. This story of Ruth not only leads to the hope of Israel, but the hope of the world. Right, because if we were to continue in the genealogy, it stops at David. But if we were to continue in the genealogy, we would find that it's through David's line that Jesus comes the savior of the world. If you look at the genealogies of Jesus in in Luke 3 or in Matthew 1, you see those very same names are all listed there, but it just keeps going from David all the way to Jesus. And so this this story, which brings a, a great deal of hope to Ruth, also brings a great deal of hope to Israel, but it ought to bring a great deal of hope to us as well. And so we can choose to read it simply as an interesting story from a long time ago where a wealthy man saved some widows, or we can look at it within its context. And when we see it in its context, it becomes all the more beautiful, all the more filled with hope. Because the truth is, no matter how much hope Obed brought to Ruth and Naomi, they were still hopeless without Jesus. And the reality is that as kind and noble and loving as Boaz was, he was a sinner in desperate need of salvation. And the only hope of salvation that he had would be found in Jesus. 
And it is the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus that brings true hope into our deepest despair. And so the story of Ruth ends really nicely. And tie a little bow on the story, right? But as I said earlier, our stories often don't seem to end with that sort of hopefulness, right? Ruth's story is one of all of her earthly needs being met. And sometimes, sometimes our stories look like that too, but whether it does or not, because of Jesus, we have a better and a greater hope. We hope for the things of this world, right? We hope for things like spouses and children and money and health and a new job and a new house and a new car. We hope for earthly things. But the hope that we are pointed to in scripture is is above and beyond this world, above and beyond the greatest hopes that we have. We, We are promised a hope that is so far beyond our scope of vision. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is your hope. Your true hope is an eternal glorified relationship with God himself, where you will dwell with him in the new heavens and the new earth forever. This is what Romans chapter eight just lays out so, so beautifully. I wanna read it for us from Romans chapter eight, a variety of verses there. Let me start in verse 22. It's what we read earlier. It says this, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So Paul does this zooming in thing as well, right? He starts way out here. The whole of creation is groaning, and then he zooms in on us, and he says, and so are we. We are groaning together as we wait for our hopes to be fulfilled. But what is our hope? Our hope is not earthly things. Our hope is that our adoption into the family of God. Our hope is the redemption of our very bodies. Not just that our bodies would be made well or some other earthly hope would come to us, but something far, far bigger that we would be with Jesus. Our hope is our salvation, right? So he goes on then verse 28, he says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Right? How often do we misread this verse? We read that part, oh, he works all things together for good. And then we define what it would mean for God to do good for us. He works all things together for good. Therefore, he's gonna give me all the things that I want. That's not what it's saying at all. He works all things together for good. And then he tells you what the good is. Here's the good, that he saved you, that he called you unto himself, that he justified you, he took care of your sins. 
and that he has glorified you, that he has made you new, that you are already seated with Christ in heaven. That's the hope. Not something on earth, but something in the presence of God himself. But then he keeps going. So look at verse 31. He says this, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, gave him up for us all. How will he not with him graciously give us all things? And again, we think like, oh good. So like all of the stuff that I want. So I have Jesus plus the stuff. No, wrong again, right? What he's talking about is not earthly things, but truly all things. He's talking about this. You, if you are in Christ, you are a co-heir with Christ. Literally everything that exists Everything that exists will be made new at the coming of Christ. And then we, with Christ, inherit it. It's, he will graciously give us literally all things as we dwell with him forever in his kingdom. But we get stuck, right? We get stuck on this earthly hopes. We get stuck wishing for the kingdoms of this world. And here's what Jesus says. He says, what does it profit a man if he would gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And so Romans 8 then keeps going, drives it home in verse 35. It says this. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Think about what that means. Our hope. Our true hope is in Christ. He has conquered our sin on the cross. He has defeated death in his resurrection. In him, we are made new, redeemed, forgiven, set free, and we now have an eternal hope. An eternal hope set in front of us, secure in the love of Christ. So it seems relevant that we would ask this very question. Can anything get in the way of that hope? Can anything separate me from that hope? Because I know what it feels like. It feels like Naomi in chapter one. The struggles of this world, the despair of this world. What do I begin to ask? Have I, have I lost the love of God? Does God not love me anymore? Did he leave me? Have I been separated from God? But here's what our passage says. You have not. In Christ, you are more than conquerors. If you are in Christ, you will never be separated from Christ. Nothing can separate you. Not hardship, 
not persecution, not poverty, not hunger, not war, not racial injustice, not sickness, not singleness, not demonic attack, not barrenness, not oppressive leaders, not unemployment, not homelessness, not anything that is happening in your life right now and nothing that will happen in your life in the future will ever be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's why Paul begins this entire section in Romans 8 by saying this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. It is coming and it is sure. And so friends, I don't, I don't know, I don't necessarily know what you're going through right now. I don't know your despair. I don't know your suffering. I don't know your struggles, but I know this. I know that whatever it is, there is hope in the love of Jesus. And it is an expansive hope. It is, it is an eternal hope. It is a glorious hope. And so I pray that you would place your hope in him today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our hope. You are our only hope in life and death. And yet, Lord, we so often, we get distracted looking around at the things of this world. We're just prone. We're prone to thinking that if only I had a little bit more here, a little bit more of that, then I would be okay. But you have offered to us fullness of life in you. And so Lord, we pray that you would just help us. Help us to not be captured by the things of this world, but to be consumed by your love. Help us to not place our hope in the temporary pleasures of earth, but in the eternal delights found in relationship with you. Oh Lord, help us. In your name we pray, amen.